Mahasa. So I think you'll recall that we made a brief foray into an ontological probe into the nature of the mind in terms of its origins, location, and destination, Jungne Dosum. Classic Vipassana practice focusing on the nature of the mind, the ultimate nature of the mind, emphasized especially in the Kagyu and Yingma traditions or Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions. And it's very, very clear in Kamachamit's chapter on insight in A Spacious Path of Freedom that when the, the conclusion is drawn that mental appearances emerge from emptiness, their, their location is empty and their destination is empty. This is referring to the emptiness of inherent nature, of the mental phenomena themselves, as well as the emptiness of inherent nature of their origins and of their destination. And so this would be very much in accord with the much broader Madhyamaka theme that we find in Nagarjuna uh, in his ontological analysis of causality, that phenomena do not arise, it's the tetralemma, that phenomena do not arise from themselves, they do not truly arise from other, they do not truly arise from self and other, nor do they truly arise from neither self nor other classic. And so by engaging in that type of analysis, then one can see that phenomena do not inherently arise at all. If they don't inherently arise at all, then they would be very hard to imagine how they can inherently exist if they never inherently came into existence. So it's classic, classic Madhyamaka. And in a a compendium of of essays on Dzogchen and Madhyamaka that I translated, one of the two authors of, this, of, these, of these essays comments that this particular approach, origin, location, destination, is really designed for people following this Mahamudra or Dzogchen path in which you first achieve shamatha on the nature of the mind. You're resting in the substrate consciousness. You've, you've reduced mind down to its kind of bare skeleton. It's not configured as a human mind, male or female, old, young, or so forth. You've got it down to its nucleus, not its, not its ultimate nature, but, you, you know, the bhavanga, the subtle continuum of mental consciousness. But this is kind of like a stem consciousness. As Penjana Mucha says, you've come to, when you identify that, you've identified the conventional nature, the relative nature of mind. And Dujum Lingbo, or Padmasambhava and the Vajra Essence, as we'll see later on, says you've now identified the essential nature of the mind, but on a relative level, right? And then you take that, so now you're seeing it nakedly, unadorned, unconfigured, not complex, simple, simple. And then, having this kind of this raw specimen, then you investigate whether this raw specimen truly originates, is truly located anywhere, truly goes anywhere. Inclusion is no, 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 and then, and then you have realized emptiness of mind. And then Kamachamadamachi then comments towards the end of his chapter, that once you've realized the emptiness of inherent nature of the mind and you direct your attention outwards to all objects of the mind, any type of object of the mind, once you've realized that that by which you are apprehending any other object is itself empty, then it follows very readily that the nature of all the objects of the mind that you're apprehending must also be empty. It's like dominoes, it's like a domino effect, everything falls apart and you see the emptiness of all phenomena. On the one hand, on the other hand, there's a theme that's especially drawn out, uh, 
all of us who've studied Buddhist logic and debating and epistemology, uh, just basic kind of classical Buddhist Buddhist philosophy, as in Satrantika, in the more it's a phenomenological analysis of causality. So we're not going ontology. We're not asking whether it's inherently existent, but you know, if you see a crop of wheat, where did the, did the wheat just come out of nowhere? Did it just come out of emptiness, or did the wheat actually come from someplace? And the answer is, yeah, seeds. And the seeds germinated, and the, each seed, as it germinated, the seed transforms into the sprout, and in so doing, loses loses its identity as a seed, and takes on the identity of a sprout. Therefore, it's called a a primary cause, a substantial cause. The very substance of the seed transforms into the substance of the sprout. So once the sprout has arisen, you just have the husk that's shunted off to the side. And so that one one, one transforms into the other. And it's widely stated, and I don't think this is anywhere challenged in all of Buddhist philosophy, that all conditioned phenomena arise from a substantial cause, or something that transforms into it. Have you found any exception to that anywhere, Glenn? Nor have I. And it kind of makes really good common sense as well. And moreover, that by and large, and this calls for subtlety that we don't, just don't have time for right now, but I know there are issues here. But when something passes out of existence, if it had to transform, if something else had to transform into it, for it to come into existence, then it does, there's a symmetry there one would expect that it, in turn, transforms into something else. So that the, the stalk of wheat, for example, gets burnt. Okay? It gets burnt, and then the stuff of the stalk turns into ash, it turns into thermal energy, it turns into smoke, it turns into, yeah, all like that. So it transforms into something else, and in so doing, loses its, loses its identity as a stalk of wheat, and takes on the multiple identities of thermal energy, ash, smoke, and the like. Yeah? So there's a conservation principle here that is kind of really core to a Buddhist understanding of causality. So now let's bring this to the mind, because that, after all, is really the central central focus of Mahamudra and Dzogchen and this whole retreat. So now we can speak of a phenomenological investigation. As we are attending to, here we are, we're directing the telescope of our samadhi to the space of the mind and seeing the events that arise there. So we very briefly, and we're not going to repeat it right now, very briefly did the ontological approach, a probe, do these phenomena, if they really exist, do they really come from anywhere? Empty. Do they really exist anywhere? No. Do they really go anywhere? No. Empty, empty, empty. Okay, now let's get on with it. And then he goes right back into the conventional approach. Dujum Lingwa, classic. This is what he does again and again in his, in his five Zotian treatises. Now that you've kind of shaken up the reification of mind, probably haven't fully realized it yet, but you've shaken it up. <coughs> then you come right back and you take the mind as the path. This mind that didn't really tru- truly arise from anywhere, isn't located anywhere, doesn't really go anywhere. Now that mind you're taking as your path. You're observing thoughts, images, and so forth. Yeah, all clear. But now that we're here, right in midstream of this taking the mind as the path, and we are making sure that we're not l- missing anything, not <coughs> overlooking anything, and that is the space of the mind also is you know, a, leg- a legitimate object, an important object of mindfulness here. As we're maintaining that baseline, you, know, you, you may have a sustained interval between this event and that event arising in the space of the mind. And during that sustained interval where you, you just don't see anything happening in the space of the mind, then, as I emphasized yesterday, try to see that as clearly as possible. 
And you can ask them simple questions like I did yesterday afternoon. Is it flat or three-dimensional, black or transparent? Does it have a center, shape, periphery, size, and so forth? These are very reasonable phenomenological questions, right? As we establish that baseline of ascertaining the space of the mind, there's one, one other point that came out just was quite clear in my meditation this morning. And that is, as you're attending to it, and I'm really bearing in mind what the comment Kathy made yesterday, uh, but not now. It may be easy to un- interpret your statement as more theoretical, true, but not empirical. Like, this has the potential. You have the potential to stand up right now, but you're not doing it. So that's something, it is true, but I'm not observing it. I just know that you're of sound body and mind, and you do have legs, and you could stand up if you wanted to. So I'm looking at you, you could stand up if you wanted to, but it's not something I observe. But check this out, just if you will, if you, if you feel like it. When you're really very still, and you're observing that space of the mind, come very closely, fine-tune it, enhance the acuity, high resolution of your awareness. Attend very closely. And as you're tend- attending to that space of the mind, check, is it static? Is it dead? Is it f- not flat, as in the sense of two-dimensional, but flat is nothing happening? Or, and this is a leading question, but you know, check it out for yourself. Is it effervescent? Is there something almost like fizzing? Something dynamic, something suggesting it could explode at any moment, but not as a conceptual imputation, but seeing almost like it's scintillating. That's probably the wrong word, but I think you get, get the impression. Now, one thing we can be sure of, that is in terms of Buddhist philosophy, um, and that is, Glenn, this, this space of the mind, is it permanent or impermanent? This space of mind we're attending to, is it permanent or impermanent? It has to be impermanent. Yeah, it has to be impermanent. Not in the sense that it's going to vanish someday and you, know, you won't have it anymore, but in the classic meaning in Buddhism, impermanent means it's arising from moment to moment to moment. Well, that would already imply it's not static. It's impermanent. The unconditioned space, which is a sheer absence of obstructing contact, that's a sheer absence. That doesn't arise from moment to moment. It's permanent, it's unchanging. But this is called, this is a space that you can observe. So observing that, see whether you can fine-tune it and see whether it's kind of, I'm speaking poetically or with a metaphor here, like a quantum, a quantum, what do they call it? Quantum, what's that term I'm looking for? It's a noun. A uh, quantum flux, a quantum field. I'm just, oh, it's the only poetry. I'm not saying it really is one. But a quantum soup that's ready to erupt at any moment. See. Then see this. When a thought arises, for example, Mary had a little lamb. There it comes. Phenomenologically, see if you can examine where it comes from. Not ultimately, but like a sprout comes from a seed. Yeah, I can, I can watch that. Is it the case? Here's the hypothesis. And again, I could be flat wrong here. Here's a hypothesis. And that is that this formless space, clearly it doesn't have a form, it's not square or, quadru- or cubic or what have you. His hypothesis is that this energy-filled space actually takes on form. It can take on the form of a mental replica of a sound, like a song or a melody, 
of form, a scent, and so forth and so on, it actually, the space actually transforms into, takes on the form of a thought, an image, and so on, these appearances. And then those appearances just fade right back into that space. They dissolve back into it like a wave on, on, the, on the ocean, emerging from the ocean, dissolving back into the ocean. It was never anything other than the ocean, but it just took on that form for a while, and then that form just dissolves right back into its ground. Is that the case? Phenomenologically now. The ontological probe is not to suggest that mental events don't exist, which is simply silly, but they are empty appearances. There's no substance to them. They have no inherent identity. They don't exist by their own nature. But they do exist as empty appearances. Emptiness is form, form is emptiness. Very, very familiar refrain. But now, as empty appearances, then, are they emerging from the space? Does the space actually become crystallized as these forms and then dissolve back into as soon as we raise this kind of phenomenological causality issue with respect to the mind, there are just a few options. A thought comes up, Mary had a little lamb, good as any. There's a thought, right? And you observe it, and it has causal efficacy. There's no question about it. It has causal efficacy. It can make you think of the next line of the poem, poem or what have you. So it's as real as anything else. It arises in dependence upon cause and conditions. And then the simple question can be, all right, does that thought, any thought, any image, whatever you like, does, does nothing transform into it? That is, can you have a body of nothing, absolute nothing whatsoever? Can nothing transform into something? And that seems kind of a priori impossible. If nothing could transform into something, then it should do it all, all the time or never. But why would it? happen sometimes and not at other times. But it's also kind of just insults the intelligence. Nothing transforming into a chocolate cake, nothing transforming into an atom, nothing transforming into a planet, nothing transforming into a thought. It really doesn't make any sense at all. So I'm going to set that one aside as I find that utterly unsatisfying, incredibly improbable. Then we can look at what scientists are very familiar with, things like neurons, synapses, dendrites, and so forth. Do they actually transform into thoughts and so forth? The thoughts are evidently non-physical. They have no physical characteristics and cannot be measured physically. That should end that conversation. So if neurons, for example, or electrical discharges from neurons, or synapses, if they actually transformed into a mental event, the physical would be transforming into something non-physical, which would violate the laws of physics. But that doesn't happen. And also you would get a, you'd become more and more lightheaded the more thoughts you had. Because <laughs> the neurons would be disappearing and turning into something immaterial. And if you lived a really long life, you might have a hollow head by the time you finish, which would be really annoying. I'd hate that. Sometimes it feels that way, but I don't think it's actually literary too. So that seems extremely implausible at least as implausible as nothing transformed into something. How would, you, how would you activate nothing so that, how would you impinge upon nothing so that it gets peaked and turns into something? It just, it kind of insults the intelligence, I think. Right? Because in the Buddhist causality, uh, causal theory, it's not enough just to have something transformed into something else. There have to be cooperative conditions that catalyze, that trigger, that enable something, like a seed, 
to transform into something that it wasn't, but it will become, and that is a sprout. And that's like water, moisture, heat, fertilizer, and so forth. And then that transformation takes place. And then you have a, a, a stalk of wheat, let's say in deep space, just hanging out there. If it's going to turn into something else, there needs to be, you know, generally it's going to be like, let's just put it right back here. Uh, there's going to need to be some cooperative condition. So n- neuronal activity, there's no question about this in my mind, it seems transparently clear. Uh, neuronal activity, the alcohol, alcohol content of your blood, and so forth, can serve as cooperative conditions for the arising of different mental states, including silliness, intoxication, dizziness, and so forth. But the alcohol doesn't turn into these mental states, the neurons don't, synapses don't, nothing physical does, but they do in, in a cooperative fashion facilitate, enact, enable uh, a state of drunkenness to arise, or, and so on. Or you can activate with the microelectrodes, you can a- activate very small ganglia of neurons and trigger a memory. That, that's happened, there's very good research there. But the electricity doesn't turn into the memory, the neurons don't turn into the memory. It acts as a cooperative condition for the memory to emerge. But if we say, where does the memory arise from? Either nothing or physical, neither of those makes any sense. So it must be arising most plausibly by a process of elimination from something non-physical. And in terms of these appearances, I think the most viable candidate, to my mind, the only one that makes sense, is that the space of the mind itself is transforming into these mental events and dissolving right back into them. So, is that true or false? Because this is not a religious catechism here. If you believe it, I don't think it's really going to help you just by believing it. At the end of the day, so what? But if it's true, if this is something you can observe, that could be very interesting. As you observe not only the formation of the objective appearances, like thoughts and images, but as, as you observe the arising of subjective impulses, and the hypothesis here would be a subjective impulse of anger or disappointment or, or joy or surprise, these are emerging from the substrate consciousness. And they dissolve back when they, when, they, when they fade out, they dissolve back into imprints or potentialities, vasanas they're called in Sanskrit, into the substrate consciousness. So right now I'm not upset at all. Zero upset. But I could have a thought or something could happen and I could get upset, in which case something, another person, a thought, a memory, what have you, triggers that. Potentiality, the vasana, the, the habitual propensity or seed, gets catalyzed by some, some event and then the subjective experience of being upset arises. And after a while it phases, f- fades away, and then the propensities, I think, as so, it came up just a couple of days ago. Oh, it was, who was it? Somebody said, oh yeah, whoever it was, said, looking, I want to know who it was. John. That's John? It was John. Thank you. You know exactly what I was looking for. Uh, and that is when we're settling the mind as natural state and anger arises, are we not reinforcing old tendencies? That was indeed John. And you remember my answer, not if we're simply observing it, but if we're identifying with it, yes. The propensities that were there for, let's say, anger, were already there, they're triggered by something, it arises, I cognitively fuse with it, I feel angry for a while, and then it subsides, I've just reinfor- reinforced those propensities. Good point, very important point. But if I don't cognitively fuse, then they're not getting reinforced. In fact, they start to dissolve away of their own accord. Interesting. So when I was doing my undergraduate work in physics at Amherst, early on, I, I, wanted, I knew I wanted to do a thesis, so I did one. And I had a wonderful mentor, Arthur Science, 
And the, my whole reason for studying physics was to really take what I understood of Madhyamaka and see how this pertained to quantum mechanics, if there was a meaningful relationship. I'd read the Tao of Physics, which I found very interesting for the physics side and very unsatisfying, let's say, for the spiritual side, because he's, not, he's a good physicist, but you know, he's an amateur when it comes to the philosophical side. And so I had the philosophical side, but I was an amateur when it came to physics. So I wanted to do, try to do a good job, really study it seriously. So I did, for two and a half years. And uh, during that time, though, I, I was very focused on one topic that Arthur Science suggested to me and then I pursued for about two years. And that is zero-point energy of the electromagnetic vacuum, which is to say the energy of empty space, which is a very, very widely accepted theme in, in quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, that empty space itself, when you take all the matter and all of the energy, like an electromagnetic thermal um, gravitational energy as a thought experiment, take a volume of space and take everything out of it. Everything. You can't do that literally. You can't take gravitational energy out. But as a thought experiment, you can. So take a volume of space, take all energy out of it, and take all matter out of it, right down to the elementary particles. Suck it all out. So now you have a volume here with nothing in it. And then you examine, theoretically and empirically, now that you've taken everything out, is there anything there? And the answer, yeah, it turns out there is. It's called the energy of empty space. Space itself has its own energy, the zero-point energy. And it permeates all of space. And I did, because I'm really slow and clunky in mathematics, I had to do it in, I think it was 30 pages of mathematics. I did it. Every step I understood. But I'm really slow. That's why it was 30 pages instead of four equations. Um, but you can calculate the energy density, how much energy is there in like a cubic centimeter of empty space. And if you do the equations straight without interpreting them or interpreting them away, and it's very elegant mathematics actually, uh, then you come out with a very neat little symbol at the end, and that is the energy density of empty space is infinite. And mathematicians and physicists just don't know what on earth to do with that. And so then they, they normalize it, they recognize it, they make it manageable, they tame it. But the straight mathematics says that the uh, energy of empty space is already infinite. And it is said, now, stepping back, however you want to interpret that, literally, or interpret it away so it's no longer infinite. And, and it's not silly when they do that. Uh, but it's not necessarily justifiable either. The point here being, this is only an, an, an analogy, but I found it an interesting one years ago. And in, the, in this view, quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, energy is per- permeated by this space, and there occur quantum fluctuations where out of the very nature of space itself, um, configurations of mass energy will emerge, and they'll dissolve right back into it. So it's not so much horizontal, this seed turning into this sprout, but right out of the nature of empty space itself, there emerges a configuration of mass energy, and then it dissolves back into the field. Right? I thought that was quite interesting. And according to the time-energy-Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which I studied fairly closely, the shorter the, fluctu- the shorter the fluctuation, the shorter the emergence of some configuration of mass energy, the shorter it is, uh, the larger it can be. The longer it is, the smaller it has to be. So one of the major theories about the, the, what catalyzed the Big Bang is that it was an extremely brief quantum fluctuation, which released an enormous amount of energy, enough to mm, create a universe. 
extremely brief, which means it can be extremely large. It was going boop, boop, and then the and then the universe comes. And then in one theory, then the universe, when it stops accelerating, it will turn around, and it will converge in upon a singularity. That'll be called the big crunch, and it'll go back into the singularity. And this may be cyclical. Einstein thought that was cyclical. It's not at all clear, uh, one way or another. But that's one plausible hypothesis. And then along these same lines, there's a theme that His Holiness Dalai Lama learned about a long time ago. And he's engaged with world-class physicists. And that is the notion that space itself is not a smooth continuum, but space itself is composed of particles, or quanta. That all of space consists of quanta, little globules, little particles of space, space particles. And that when a... And, and that the universe is actually emerging from space particles. Voila, world. And that His Holiness has related this to Kala Chakra, where the, it is the view in Kala Chakra that space is considered, uh, con, con, consists of namke uh, durten, the particles of space. And then, in fact, the formation of a world system emerges from particles of space, which take on form. And then, after some time, expansion and contraction, you remember that? Then, they eventually, eventually, they contract back into particles of space. And it's the cooperative condition is the karma of sentient beings that triggers these space particles to manifest in a world that is inhabitable for the sentient beings whose karma co-created it. You remember Thomas Hertog saying, there's something very, very, very odd about the laws of physics and the, and the constants, the physical constants, at the time of the Big Bang. Extremely rare, extremely precise, just exactly that needed to allow life to emerge as we understand it. Well, the Buddha said, yeah, you're right. And that which teases out those laws and those constants is the karma of the sentient beings who have just migrated from another universe that collapsed, dissolved into a singularity, and they're migrating over to another one. And the sentient, not God now, not some external entity, but the sentient beings who will populate the universe that is about to be formed. It is their, their karma that is triggering, catalyzing, configuring the space particles, so that the universe that comes out will be habitable for them. And no universe emerges that is not catalyzed by the karma of sentient beings. Because universes are for the sake of sentient beings. We're not accidental. Was that enough? <laughs> Let's go watch the show. 26 minutes, here we go. 24 minutes. Silent meditation. So just very briefly. So during our in-between session periods, uh, we're still experiencing appearances rising all over the place, and we're experiencing subjective mental impulses arising from moment to moment. And as for the appearances arising in the space of the mind, thoughts and mental image and so forth, so for all the other appearances, uh, they too are arising from the substrate. And when we fall into deep sleep, they dissolve back into the substrate. So there's no difference. The thoughts, mental image, and so forth, simply a, sub, a subspace of the larger space of awareness altogether. And all these appearances we see of the surrounding Tuscany countryside and so forth, all those appearances emerging from space, and when we blink, dissolve back into space, 
when we fall back into deep sleep, back into space. We start dreaming. We may dream of Tuscany. Dream your hearts out, people listening podcasts. You, you too can join us in your dreams. And when you're seeing, you know, in your dreams in the waking state, the Tuscany landscape, whether it's dreaming or the waking state, the origin of the appearance is the same. Cooperative conditions are different. Cooperative kitchen, the conditions for us who are here, there are photons coming in, there are sound waves coming in, and so forth and so on, of course. When you're dreaming, there are no photons coming in. Your eyes are closed anyway. So the cooperative conditions are different. But the stuff, life is the stuff that dreams are made of. The appearances of the waking state are no more or less real or substantial than dream appearances. And they don't exist any more from their own side than dream appearances. So Jujum Lingba, Padmasambhava, says at one point, well, the primary difference between dreaming and waking state is waking appearances are a bit more durable. <laughs> they last longer. But they're not more substantial. Yeah. So when we start to understand this, we really get it, then, it's, then we don't just put it in a drawer, into a mental drawer like a pair of socks that you may wear one day, but you immediately put them on and you walk in them. And that's when you really are viewing reality, not just having some Buddhist beliefs or having entertaining some very interesting Buddhist hypotheses, all good intellectual entertainment. But when you actually start viewing reality, that's when things start to change. You know? So we try to implement, to integrate as much as possible the way of viewing reality, uh, based upon first hearing and then thinking, and then the meditation is going right into experience. And we're enriching experience, enriching experience with our view, with our understanding and insight, and we're enriching experience also from the heart when we attend to other sentient beings. And we have, as Shantideva says, just one little snippet I've remembered so many times, when you see another sentient being walking in like a human being, for example, walking along the road, and just to view that person saying, ah, this is my kin, independence upon people, just like this one, I can practice dharma and have an immediate sense of gratitude, immediate sense, I'm here to repay your kindness. That's why I'm here. You know, it's So you're not just being mindful moment to moment, yes, there's a person walking this way. That's kind of like a depleted mindfulness, You know, just getting appearances, kind of, kind of like meager diet. But we enrich mindfulness by bearing in mind the insights, the understanding that we have. So we attend to other sentient beings in a different way. We attend to appearances in a different way. We attend to ourselves in a different way. That sounds good to me. Awesome. Enjoy your day. <laughs>